Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I'm Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. So Edwin, hey, nice to meet you. My name is uh, Chris Mottis. I am the CEO of Inberg Systems. I'm based in Copenhagen, Denmark. I grew up in different parts of Africa, and I came to Denmark in, uh, at the age of 23 after university. My most fantastic job work experience was, so this is a funny one because I'm supposed to say exactly what I'm doing right now, because otherwise, you know, what am I doing it for? But um, sometimes you're allowed to be young and do things that are cool and have no future. When I was finished with university, this was in the 80s, early uh, mid-80s, uh, South Africa was still, I was in South Africa, and uh, South Africa was still under apartheid, and I was an anti-apartheid activist, which meant that I was uh, in a dilemma whether to go to the army, which I was supposed to do, or not. And my choice was not, since that was kind of the opposite of where I was. And I spent around a year working as a tour guide in the Kruger Park. And the advantage of working there was, I wasn't working for the Kruger car, Park because that would be a state job and then I would definitely get caught as a deserter. I was a deserter at this point. But what I could do is I could work for a company. This is before computers, it must be said. I mean, this is, you know, nowadays this is not going to do that. Way do, back, way, way back. Do not do this at home. They will catch you today. This is only something that worked pre-95. This was in 88, 89. I spent about a year working as a tour guide for a private company, and which meant that I was on the road for 28 days of the year. And I could move my official residential address from one place to the next, um, but never be there. So um, that was actually fantastic. I had actually, if I really had followed my dreams at that time, I would have been working there permanently as a ranger or as a biologist. That was probably my first love was, uh, was working as a biologist in a game park. A big, I mean, the Kruger Park is the size of most of Denmark where I live now. The last book I read, well, I, <laughs> this is going to maybe a little odd, but I'm actually almost finished book five of the Game of Thrones. I think if I'm reading fiction, for the, I primarily read science fiction and a little bit of, I guess it's called fantasy. And then I read bios, but I really, I like the idea of reading bios of important people that I admire. You know, so of course I've read Mandela and I've read, but in principle, if I'm gonna relax, I prefer science fiction. And the funny thing about science fiction to me is I take it quite seriously in the sense that just about everything I've read has pointed to where we're going pretty accurately in so many ways, yeah. both politically, historically, technology-wise, human sociology. Good sci-fi writers have thought these things through to create the world that they are creating. To me, I consider it research. That's very cool. I think I have found a like person on the planet. I too mm -hmm. am passionate about that kind of thing for that reason. 
because it foretells the future or the yes. near future for sure. Yes, that's that's definitely my experience. And a lot of the deep thinking in something like, you know, the foundation series by Asimov or Ian M. Banks culture series or Arthur C. Clarke, of course, there's so much thought put into where we are going. Yeah. And so much of it is very accurate as what could happen if we go in this yeah. direction. So we're, we're using so, that uh, genre as our strategic planning tool. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, honestly, yes. I, I, there's, you know, I don't have to be ahead. Someone else is already ahead for me. Exactly. I just have to read the literature. <laughs> <laughs> the topic I can talk for hours about is history, cultures, and politics, I would say. I had a really good education which uh, makes it easy compared to many people because it turns out, I mean, less and less people have that, even though they pay more and more for it, apparently. There are a lot of problems with my education, but in terms of it was a you know, a boarding school environment in the old English form with the old English disciplines and corporal punishment and so on. But the knowledge transfer was very effective and we learned a lot. And so a lot of history, a lot of religion, I'm not in any way a um, religious person. In fact, I think you guys in the U.S. don't like the word atheist, but I'm definitely an atheist by the definition mm -hmm. that uh, that I know. And uh, but I know I've read a lot of well, I've read the Bible from end to end because that was part of my education. Read a lot about Buddhism, a lot about I've grown up in. Uh, Islam, I've grown up with uh, Hindi, with Tamil, with Buddhists, with Catholics, with Protestants. That all is, for me, a great basis for understanding people and their cultures and their cultural heritage and something I would suggest everyone should do. And the other thing is, don't think yours is the right one. <laughs> I thought that was the whole game plan of any one of those outfits. <laughs> They're right. That's the issue. <laughs> And with that comes an interest of history and, and, and politics and cultures and how they intersect and, and how alike we actually are, which so many people have such a hard time seeing, which really is weird. But there you go. I love to travel, meet people, cook, brew beer, and ride motorbikes. Wow. Can I come over for a visit? <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. There was actually one okay. I really thought, you know, I'm so exposed here. <laughs> If stranded on an island, my top three must-haves are a sharp knife, a flintstone, and an iron pot. Obviously, what else are you going to take if you're stranded? <laughs> like, oh, you mean like some cultural yeah. artifact or something? No, no. I need to catch that fish and eat it, man. <laughs> it's that. Yeah. All right, my friend. I'm going to start off with a sound effect here, and I want you to tell me what it is. Microdot printer. Yes, yes. And the reason I bring that up is because I have an old radio background also when we had AP sitting in the, in the closet cranking out news, you know, because you had to go rip it and read the news uh, straight from right. the wire. And I bring that up because your background and then the place you were raised and experienced and developed uh, your early on years, news is... Is do you, let me ask you this: Has news changed from when you were coming up in learning journalism and understanding the role, the ethics, the responsibility 
Has it changed? Or maybe people's perceptions of news changed? Yeah, I think that's where we're going, Easy. Just an aside, you could also have put the sound of a telex in the back. I would have recognized that too, <laughs> just, to, just to place an age here. I grew up in South Africa, or a lot of my, my youth. I was always in Mauritius and Swaziland. But then we had censorship. We had a state broadcaster that was run by a regime. You know, every record that was going to be played on the radio had to be approved. So in the sense that using the media to manipulate people, no, that has not changed. I think what might have changed is that it's become more the norm. And I don't even want to say in the United States because there was always someone broadcasting, but it's just become more mainstream in the sense that not telling the truth, but coloring it to suit your narrative. I don't think that's changed. I think there are still a lot of journalists and the majority, I would almost say, that actually still have a mission to expose an objective truth and to disseminate it. The issue has become the access to the media that allow that objective dissemination, yeah. where previously there were requirements to check your facts and to, I mean, this goes back to, is it the 80s when Ronald Reagan yeah. basically removed the requirement that you are objective in the US? And that was reflected further throughout the rest of the so-called Western democracies. That would be my take on it. I think there are a lot of people who are driven by a passion to present an objective and well-researched journalistic piece of information. Yeah. The, the, the people holding the controls and the, the consensus that news should be correct and objective has politically been removed. Well, it's been, it's kind of been hijacked, hasn't it? Hijacked, kind of, yeah. In your example, when you've got a centralized anything that is in command and control of the content, that's one source. We fast forward to 2021, where anything is a source now, uh, with the amount of volume that any consumer can touch between anything internet-based or otherwise, that you don't know what the objective of the producer is. You have no clue. There's no vetting. There's no, there's nobody at the wheel to rule things in or rule things out as validity and vetting. It was almost easier when there was only one source of broadcast or one source of info. But now it is such a tumultuous and, and tornadic activity of just influencers as the term is now uh that are just out in the digital space how does the consumer protect themselves or at least become more aware of what they're listening or consuming is that the question or that's is that a, a rhetorical question that's a big question come on now <laughs> what's the answer come on you're you're a smart guy oh man i know education is kind of the only answer i have to that because i don't think we're going to roll you know, roll back that that situation. No. Genie is out of the bottle. Yeah, I think that that we need to work 
more on giving people the tools to question where their information mm. is coming from, or at least the to be able to validate it. Yes. Um, so that's one thing. And, and to be honest, I think our kids are quite good at it. You know, I, I don't, at least, well, you know, I can, I can only speak for the ones I know. They question a lot of the social media and the messaging they find there in the sense that they have a healthy skepticism. Well, that's positive. I think as, you know, us old folks are a little too quick to question their intelligence and their critical sense. However, the fact that these influencers even can make a living is the counter argument. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but they did before. But I mean, think about it. There have always been charlatans. There have mm. always been populists. And populism is, you know, I know in the US, populism is, is a different kettle of fish to hear in Europe. Populism in Europe, just to make it clear, that's when Hitler is a populist. So these people have always existed. They've always been dangerous. You know, for a generation like my parents to question my children's competence in terms of being critical is a little hypocritical. Hmm. Considering that someone like Hitler could exist rule, yeah rule the day at a certain point in history without right he, and he didn't need critical thinking was just as bad then yeah. as as it is now so i think it's a human condition and people who can somehow create a fantasy that allows you to to couch back and think yes i'm one of these people mm -hmm. uh no matter what that he really entails uh, because I'm beguiled by this person's general thinking. That exists today just as much as it did in the past. Mm. And and these new channels, and there are a lot of them, are just an, uh, you know, an assault on the senses. But it also splits them up more than it did before. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Instead of having three broadcast networks for primary sources of, of information 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Yeah. I mean, so the influence is more droplet sized to it, it, it versus the, the broadband or one footprint that covered a million viewers to a certain degree. Yes. Well, let's go, let's go into this a little more because as you are in a organization that developed a software that is initially to be the man on the street, you know, the old news. And I know that's outdated now, but the person on the street, somebody talking mm -hmm. to somebody trying to get the data, trying to get what happened, what, what did you see? And how did it, you know, where were you at three o'clock? Uh, somebody inquiring, trying to understand the circumstances of, by definition, the news, what, whatever just happened here, how does this empower and how do you feel that it empowers? And I talk about Hindenburg, uh, which we'll talk about. How did you come up with the name Hindenburg anyway? This software is out there to present an option for those type of inquiring minds to build 
an understanding, to build a knowledge product of on-the-ground truth. How do you see that as a responsibility as the CEO of Hindenburg? How do you see that as an empowering responsibility? Because what you've just told me with the historical perspective of your background, you've got a you've got a heartfelt, and these are my words, yeah. you've got a heartfelt reason for um, why you are where you are. Well, I mean, the, the problem with any tool you make is that it's a double-edged sword. One person can use for good, the same person can use for evil, just to be really black and white. Our mission, at risk of sounding self-congratulatory, is to try and support the people who we judge in our fake objectivity, according to our norms, who we judge to be objective and forwarding a democratic and a democratic agenda. Now, that's always going to be a, a definition question, right? I mean, so already there we have an issue. But what we do then is that we, we work a lot with clearly underprivileged groups in, in particular, the developing world and try to provide the software and whatever training we can. I mean, a lot of these things sound easy and it's actually a lot more difficult than one would imagine to help a community radio in somewhere in, in, in Africa representing a, a group of indigenous people that is, uh, you know, disenfranchised. You know, as an example, the Khoisan or the San people in Botswana, who I think the, the common term people know the mind is the Bushmen. Uh, so they're the sand people in, in, in Botswana and northern South Africa live in the desert of Botswana. And until recently, no one gave a damn until they realized that that's where all the diamonds are. There's loads of diamonds there. And so they started all of a sudden having an agenda, which is, oh, we've got to help these poor people be integrated in the modern society and moving them into basically force moving them into compounds where they're going to be educated and integrated uh, against their will. Because what they really want to say is, oh, so now there's no one out in the land, we can take the diamonds. Now, those people don't necessarily have the wherewithal to even set up a communications department. So we work with the organizations like someone called uh, Cultural Survival which is based in the US, but it is basically an organization of indigenous groups around the world that are trying to provide access to communications for those groups. Um, and that's everywhere from Central America, South America, Asia, Africa. And they have an apparatus that will you know, go out and train them and provide, and we just, provide software to them and, and in their case we actually do a funding drive every year but for us as a tiny organization to go to Botswana and set up a radio station is just impossible we do what we can as far as we can I don't want to stand here on a soapbox and tell the world that we are saving the world we we, we are not we're doing a tiny part and we're doing what we can and that's about it well come on you're not making bullets and rifles I, I could be i could be yes that's true this is more uplifting or more enabling empowering than a lot of other things i commend the mission i commend the purpose because the only, you know, the internet has become baseline expectation of communication and connection 
that ability to connect the planet. And until somebody puts those tools and capabilities into the hands that have never used it or don't have access or can't afford it or all those sorts of things, you're never going to get a 360 view of anything. You're never going to give a 360 view or perspective in your example, the indigenous population. Just imagine what if this was all backed up 300 years ago and the native Americans had internet and the native Americans had all these tools. What would have changed? I don't know, but at least empowering, empowering those who need empowered, uh, is, is powerful medicine. I mean, that's, that's a huge plus, but I'll go back to the other side of it as a producer and consumer of content. There is so much being produced and at all different levels. How does one vet anything? So what's your trusted source? Let's, let's put it that way. What's your personal trusted source? My approach has always been, or has been for a long time, to subscribe to a lot of different news sources, both left and right wing. And I have the huge advantage that I live in a country uh, where we have a national broadcaster who has a, an independent mandate politically and who has always had a, a, kind of like the BBC, you know, the Danish Broadcasting Corporation has an an apolitical mandate and has a very high journalistic set of standards. But I, I so I, I have that as one source and I have a lot of other independent media. I subscribe to something called the Daily Maverick, which is a South African newspaper, independent newspaper, something called Africa Quartz. Also is a more liberal business focused, but also, polit, uh, you know, um, reports on other things. Uh, the Economist, uh, the BBC, The Guardian, New York Times. Yeah, and then my father has a pension for the South China News for some reason. Uh, well, not for some reason. His his wife is Chinese, so he, he keeps me up to date with the, the official uh, CCP line. <laughs> so uh, you've just given a great perspective of having a buffet-style news system that you have kind of ar architecturally built for your own regional or otherwise interest and in validity in your own thinking. These are yep. tr somewhat trusted sources. And the idea that you have globally set these little uh, islands out there of truth give you the opportunity to probably prospect different perspectives of the same topic just to see where differences are or biases Tell me more about that. Yes, I mean, I think that's really the point is is to have, I don't trust any one of them implicitly. What source do they have? What are the political motivations of that source? You know, and the same for the BBC and, and The Guardian and so on. And what is the, I mean, The Guardian is uh, openly left-leaning, if you like, newspaper. Their editorial is is clear the economist is a liberal again definitions economically liberal uh it, it's actually quite interesting the word liberal but that's a whole nother discussion uh, you know i mean to me <laughs> someone like the economist if you <laughs> 
hello cat is is you know that's liberal to me you know somebody who's you can do whatever the hell you like to as long as you don't hurt someone else and you play within the rules yep that's liberalism to me the definition of liberal in the u.s is a very odd thing for me sometimes let's uh, let's get back to the companies tell me about hindenburg and your relationship and how you got there nick who is the nick dunkley is the person who found the need if you like and, and addressed it uh, he was working for an, an aid organization in zambia and tasked with creating a community radio station out in the rural areas where people have a very limited schooling and at that time very limited access to computers the issue was that how do you then empower these people to tell stories without them having to learn some incredibly complex sound engineering to even produce a decent sound because at the end of the day if you're distracted by the quality or the lack of quality in audio you lose your uh, credibility i think would be uh, the right expression um but so that was the basis and 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 his the co-founder Preben, who's was a friend of his who's a programmer was by pure coincidence visiting him in zambia on holiday and they got into a discussion which ended up with them saying well we can make one of those and the idea was actually a hobby project at the time uh nick then had uh, came back to to denmark i was running my own uh, been doing for many years doing radio and television and computer games and media production basically and i had had to close that down which meant that i was you know, looking for new things to do and i was actually working in the uk at the time and nick happened to have worked with my previous business partner friend's wife at the danish broadcasting corporation and then contacted through him me because they were looking to actually make a company out of this hobby project and asked if i could help and that's around 2010 just after hindenburg had been formed as a as a company and then in the course of that 2009-10 period i started by advising that startup phase in the sense that think about products and production and and so on and then when there was a product which was viable i joined the company as a as a partner so where did the name come from that is not my fault <laughs> that is is uh it was nick's it's nick's fault uh, basically <laughs> um the name comes from the fact that nick is a an old radio or a young radio guy in his early 50s <laughs> and one of the stories that fascinated him when he was learning about radio was the advent of field reporting which is generally don't ask the italians and the british because they obviously have their own version of what's the first ever but generally recognized as being the day that herb morrison reported from the hindenburg explosion in 1937 and happened by pure coincidence to be out there testing a remote field recording apparatus which weighed about 120 130 pounds now i'm being very nice and transcontinental here so Thank around you. 50 kilos is, is my uh, information and went from a you know a description of you know this beautiful ship coming in with, the, with, the, with all the happy stars and exploding and then went into a very well-known recording 
of this report with oh the humanity which people know and yeah. which then yeah. became recorded on a wax disc and to the best of my knowledge the first report from the field that was then recorded and sent from coast to coast because you could then pass this wax disc on from local station to local station um, and so that's where Hindenburg, uh, the name came from. Definitely a, a huge disaster for the time, but to be there and capture it live, but in a, in a recordable format that could be replayed, uh, was monumental. That was always iconic to what the importance of field work was for, was to be there when things happened. His recording was audio, but there was visuals also recorded of the event. And so it was almost like such a a weight of responsibility was the impression I got. It is a responsibility of the reporter to be there. Yes, and, and it must be said, if he'd flummoxed that, we would never have, you know, I mean, he he did a really good job of balancing between a very emotional report but still descriptive and factual and and so if if he'd blown it no one would have remembered it you're right he did capture details because that's the thing with the audio format you have to put voice yep. to the visual it must be said that originally the company was called msaka which is a zambian word for the place where the community gathers to tell stories in the evening what's the word again yeah so nsaka n-s-a-k-a it's a beautiful word it's a beautiful concept and it would have been my first choice for the company name understood but it was yes. just so difficult for people to catch nsaka with that being said as the initial and then going to hindenburg i can see the reasoning why that was picked in the essence that why this company exists, which is to be that field reporter, I can, yeah. Yeah, but again. I can understand the underlying understanding of why storytelling is important. Right, and, and the other thing is we started with a radio market in mind. Now we have a podcasting is, is as strong, probably stronger than radio in terms of, and so it's, it's a little yeah. challenging with Hindenburg because we're really, and then if you talk about our audiobook product, it really is odd to be called Hindenburg. But you know, you never know where you're gonna head. You know, the market develops as you move. So let's go to that new product line. Tell me more about the narration uh, version sure. of this software. We have two products. The one is the the Hindenburg original series for radio and podcasting, currently called Hindenburg Journalist and Journalist Pro. Then we have the Hindenburg audiobook creator series for recording audio, which is Hindenburg Narrator and Hindenburg Audiobook Studio. So the Narrator product, which I'm going to call it Hindenburg Narrator, is designed originally uh, in collaboration with the Talking Book Libraries for the Blind uh, in about 2012-13, I want to say, because they actually started using our journalist product for audiobook recording, uh, the Danish uh, and Norwegian uh, talking book libraries for the blind because of the auto-leveling and the other features, which because their speakers were, you know, spending hours and hours and hours trying to do all the technical work instead of speaking. And even though they have, in, in those days, you would have a narrator in one booth and, a, and an engineer on the other side, 
you couldn't have a one-to-one -one relationship necessarily. So that meant afterwards somebody had to go in and clean it all up. And so they found our product and then they called us and said, you know, could you just do some minor tweaks to this and, and we could use it for audiobook recording. Of course, it turned out that that minor tweak was basically a make a whole new product, which had <laughs> audio engine and so on with the basics and the interface, but you know the complexity of it is incredible. And so that allows mm. you to import a text document in different formats, Word, EPUB, and, and, and other text formats. And then it automatically, if there is a structure, will create a structure as in a table of contents. So headers, chapters, sentence level, whatever is the, the structure. And then you can read from the screen and uh, record it and synchronize it with the text as you read and then export it as a book, an audiobook with navigation built in for the blind. And for, you know, we, we, we spent quite a long time developing that and we also then the national library service uh, the library of congress in the u.s national library service contacted us soon afterwards and said oh wait we need one of those too and so we spent a lot of time building and refining and for their very 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 technically specific and and you know for good reason formats and then we started getting contact from commercial publishers and narrators who work for those and also work in the commercial world and said, you know, we could really use one of these for our audiobook recording. And so that's how we've then in the last three years or so expanded into a much more commercial uh, environment. And of course, the advent of home studios and home recording equipment over the last five years has changed incredibly. And the number of people who now make a living re recording books and other voiceover from home rather than being in a big studio has also expanded. And then, of course, the pandemic sure. has created even more of that because people were sent home. So if you if you go to transom.org, uh, which is a fantastic resource for people doing any sort of audio, you'll see that one of the people who writes a lot there and is very, very knowledgeable is a guy called Jeff Town, T-O-W-N-E Town. Um, and he was we were lucky enough for him to discover Hindenburg very early on and very um, well established in the NPR circles as a, as a resource. He, in the beginning, was like, hey, you could do this. Could you make one of these? And so basically, we just took Jeff and put him in the software. And, and we still love him for it. That's awesome. Yeah, so it, it, it's, it's even better than it sounds. I like this Transom. Tell me more about Transom. It's a, it's a website, a resource uh, created by uh, Atlantic Public Media, uh, which is in Woods Hole, Rhode Island, hmm. I believe. Huh. It's, uh, they have been running workshops for radio and podcast production for many, many years. And they have Transom podcast with uh, Rob Rosenthal, was one of the teachers there and, and Jeff. And they have created this fantastic resource over the last uh, 10 or 15 years online where you can basically look up just about anything related to audio production, microviews and so on. It's, it's a great objective you know, uh, resource and with very, very, very clever people contributing uh, hmm. their knowledge. Uh, people like Rob Byers and Jeff Town and Rob Rosenthal and, and many others. Uh, Very cool. Well, thank you for that lead because I, I am, this is all news to me. 
<clears throat> so I I will reach out to these folks mm -hmm. because uh, they are not far from us. Yeah. Transom.org. Hey, Chris, what's your definition of knowledge management? <laughs> All right, a definition, huh? Not just a, just, Everybody loves you're not, you're Everybody not asking loves me what I know, but if I can define if it. If I had to ask you... How do you define knowledge management? What would you say? And you'll 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 understand more when I tell you later why I asked that. To me, knowledge management is the ability to collect, uh, understand, or dissect, and then uh, communicate knowledge information, and the ability to do that in a structured way, so that that information becomes available and actually influences what you do rather than just be dead information that you happen to know but don't pass it on don't ask me if i do it do you do that is that what you do i wish i could say that i have a structured <laughs> approach to knowledge management i have an awareness of my acute lack of structure in knowledge management Well, maybe that's your structure it's it's informal informal it that yeah, way. that's perfect it's very informal yeah, yes we call it informal knowledge management if you ever saw my desktop you would say oh he has a very informal way of managing his knowledge on his desk because it's always been an issue for someone else that lives in the house but it's always been my way so i'm i i get you uh well thank you for that the reason i ask that is because it is hard to define for this reason is that each organization each structure that utilizes what they think knowledge management is define knowledge not the same way. So the data and information progress to a synthesized product of knowledge is always a journey, but it's very much a local, I don't even say cultural, but just it's, uh, it's organizationally defined. But your definition was spot on. It was good. Well, thank you, my friend. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.